And that helps with lead generating for their main revenue stream. Because all of us have one main revenue stream and theirs is probably doing, you know, seeing patients. Right. We tell you about a friend of mine who's an anesthesiologist. And, you know, anesthesiologists are one of the top uh, paid specialties. Mm-hmm. And so he works full time doing that, but he also does online courses. And he started in um, medical school, uh, potential medical school students, teaching them what they need to do when they're undergrad and how to take the MCATs, how to study for it, how to get into medical school, how to survive medical school. And so he makes more money on his side project than as an anesthesiologist. And he's making a lot of money as an anesthesiologist. <laughs> Right. And so he has a lot of different revenue streams because once he has a product, he's teaching college students how to get into medical school and how to survive that part of their life. All of a sudden, he has a product that he can package in a million different ways. Because let me tell you, in today's economy, people don't pay for content. They pay for packaging. This is the Providers, Properties, and Performance podcast, the podcast that brings together leaders in healthcare and investment real estate to consider the possibilities in future at the intersection of practicing medicine and healthcare real estate investment returns. Welcome to the Providers, Properties, and Performance podcast. I am your host, Trisha Talbot. As a healthcare real estate advisor to providers and investors, the best solutions occur when the two collaborate together as partners in delivering better patient care. Providers can deliver care to their patients when and where they need it, and investors realize the returns to build and manage facilities. We explore changes in medicine and wellness, the future of healthcare, and using real estate as a strategic and financial tool. This week's episode is part two of my interview with Robin Farman Farmain. This week's episode is the second half of a two-part episode with her. Last week, we touched on cutting-edge technologies in the medical space that are changing healthcare delivery and care. This week, we focus on how private practice physicians can use different marketing methods and become a thought leader in their field to use for lead generation and awareness in the new healthcare economy. Robin shares with us examples of how physicians can set themselves apart as healthcare consumerism increases. Please join me next week for an interview with Dr. Jonathan Johnson, a physician in Washington, D.C. that specializes in wound care and his two private practices. So we're looking at all this technology coming on board. We're looking at practices having to be really customer service oriented. So for private practice physicians, you know, they are entrepreneurs, but I'm not sure some of them have started creating brands, but some of them are going to need to in the new healthcare economy. So you have a book called The Thought Leader Formula. I want to move into that and see how we can relate that to the future of healthcare delivery. So, you know, I think we've mentioned that healthcare consumerism is here. Patients are going to shop treatments and procedures moving forward, and they're going to try to reduce their out-of-pocket costs, which means physicians and practices will need to market themselves as they will not always be able to rely on payer networks or insurance contracts to drive patients. Because if the insurance isn't going to pay for it anyway, then, you know, the insurance doesn't matter. So can you share an example of where a patient, you know, should shop a treatment or procedure? If they're they're saying, hey, I need to find a practice that does this. And then they go and try to Google it. And, you know, and then whichever practice advertises it better is likely to get eyeballs. Not only that, but there's that new rule. And I think it's federal tool, but in California where hospitals and clinics need to post their prices on their most common things. Right. And so 
it turns out, so I, I mentioned I'm on Remicade, which is an IV infusion. I get eight times a year. Now I was getting it in a hospital and uh, down the street and I downloaded the prices and they charge $28,000 per infusion just for the medication. I moved it into my home six years ago using a national company called Option Care, which actually covers about 90% of the alternate site infusion clinics. And this is a this is a really big growth area. So listen to this story carefully. I moved it into the home and it's just a full service pharmacy. They ship the medication to my home the, the week before. They deploy the nurse. She mixes it on site like a pharmacist and then she administers the, uh, the IV. They charge $1,200 for the medication. $28,000. And I have to go to a hospital where I'm surrounded by 14 other patients in a giant, extremely loud, noisy room with blasting televisions and sit there for five hours and pay $28,000 for medication. Or I can be at home, chilling out in my bedroom, watching TV, have a primary care nurse, essentially one-on-one -on -one treatment for five hours. And I don't ever get exposed to any type of infectious disease because of course, whenever you go anywhere that people are sick, you're being exposed to infectious disease. Right now I'm small. This is a medication that is actually based on weight and I'm about 90 pounds. So I'm getting a very small dose. My nurse has someone who gets a dose four times bigger than mine, oh. which means every time that he gets his Remicade, if he was getting it at that hospital, they would be charging close to $100,000 eight times a year. This is where people go bankrupt and then they can't afford, mm -hmm. they can't actually afford care. Yep. Not only that, but I mean, this is a 25 year old drug, right? <laughs> like uh, there's biosimilars out there. This is not like, obviously it's not Janssen. J&J &J putting up the prices. They are actually reimbursing me my copay now. And if they are selling it to option care for such a low price that they only have to charge $1,200 to actually make enough money on me as a patient, then you know that the hospital, um, there are hospitals that are really just, you know, charging $95,000 too much per, yeah. per infusion. And the thing is, is now patients are getting smarter to this because hospitals and clinics do need to post all of these prices. Right. And so those of us with large copays, when I was getting it done in the hospital, my copay was $1,000 each time. I had to spend $8,000 a year. Now I spend $100. I now spend $800 total for the entire year. And so patients like myself, when you are on a long-term, lifelong medication that that's expensive, we look for ways to get it cheaper. Absolutely. And now we can. And so we're going to see this mass exodus of things like infusions into the patient's home, not just because patients are learning about it, because, you know, no one ever told us before, but because the insurers are also fighting it. The insurance companies are forcing things like Remicade out of hospitals. They're saying, if it's done in the hospital, we will not pay for it. Let's talk about how these, these physicians, you know, set themselves apart. And obviously um, being a thought leader is, is the first I, yep. I think the first point, because they, they have a lot of information to share. So how valuable is becoming a thought leader and building a brand for private practice physicians in the new healthcare economy? Huge, because you are now, especially if you're in primary care, you are now up against Amazon, Google, Microsoft, One Medical, Forward, there are just, you know, one medical is just primary care. I'm one of their patients. I love that. I love them. I spend $200 or $150 a year to be able to talk to my doctor whenever I feel like it. And it's amazing. 
they went public. Like this is not some small little startup. This is a startup that is taking over Mm -hmm. the country. And when you see primary care leaving the, the hospitals and clinics, there goes the specialist referrals. Because many hospitals, you know, of course, they have lots of uh, lost leaders, right, where they're just spending a huge amount of money. But then they have some departments that really bring in a lot of the money. And that is things like primary care to refer as the lead generator to the high end specialists. And so if primary care is shifted out of one medical, now when I'm looking for a a specialist, I'm going to ask my primary care at one medical. I'm not going right. to automatically go internally at the same hospital or, or, or a healthcare system because my doctor is just primary care. And so all of a sudden, you need to get your profile out there. If I'm looking for either primary care or a specialist and I hear about Dr. Smith and he is the best at this particular specialty, not only will I want to go see him, absolutely, I would probably be willing to pay more to see Mm -hmm. him, and I'm going to be loyal. Right. Mm -hmm. And that's a big thing, because once, especially with chronic disease patients, you fall in love with your specialists, right? If they're amazing, and you see that they, everyone else thinks they're amazing, and all of a sudden you don't want to switch. Like you have this personal investment in the relationship versus like going to an ER where you see an ER doctor, you know, one time ever. Right. Right. And even, um, you know, if they have had difficult cases and if they have a relationship with the patient to say, Hey, can I tell your story? Because I think there's other people out there, maybe not exactly with this, but that are, you know, especially with chronic disease, first of all, like you said, it takes forever to actually diagnose it correctly. You go through a battery of tests and that diagnosis, like, I mean, it can take years. And then once you have it, you know, there's, there's the ongoing treatment and for somebody to say, you know, this person came in, you know, with these sort of symptoms and, you know, we ran these tests and found this diet. I mean, just to give the story of, you know, a patient's journey that another patient can read on a website and say, oh, you know, that's, that's me. He or she might be able to actually help me. Exactly. All of a sudden, for the first time ever, medical practices and doctors need to invest in advertising and marketing. And that's what that is. That is a sales technique. That is, I will show you someone like you, and that will inspire you to hire us. That's just a basic sales technique. And all of a sudden, this is this is where healthcare has gone. And it is because these giant companies have gotten into it who are consumer-facing. Right. And I would say the oncologists, you know, that treat like these rare cancers. I mean, if you're trying to find a, a cure for your rare cancer or trying to find somebody that can help you, you know, with treatment, you know, knowing that there's people out there that have had the same thing or something similar and this physician helped them. I mean, I think that's incredibly valuable. Hugely valuable. Now, um, my sister-in-law, unfortunately, she does have uh, metastatic cancer. And so she had 13 brain tumors, brain mets. And so I found out who was supposedly the the second best neuroradiologist on the planet and got into him like right away, right? Because he had that reputation, because he has success stories and he's doing it a little bit differently. That particular clinic was doing uh, three weeks whole head radiation at once instead of two weeks partial, which is a standard of care. And so we went out of our way and Kate traveled like four hours or six hours to get to that hospital to go see that one doctor. Yeah. Based on reputation. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. 
Well, and then you talk a lot about um, multiple revenue streams in your in your book and how important it is. So, for example, how can a surgeon like the physicians are probably like, well, I I am a you know I'm a heart doctor. So how do I create different revenue streams as a heart doctor? So if someone was reading your book that is a heart doctor, how would they start with some some ideas for some multiple revenue streams that they could take advantage of? So first off, they have their main revenue, which comes in through them working on patients, right? Whether that is reimbursed or private or whatever that is, salary. Right. And then they have such an amazing, essentially, thing to teach people, right? So anytime that you can teach people how to improve their lives, how to make more money, how to be more successful in their love life, essentially, or how to make their kids better, right? Like essentially those four things, people will pay for that. Right. Right. People will pay for those things. And so you have a huge wealth of knowledge. You can, of course, write a book. A book, though, to me is a tool to be able to, uh, it's a marketing tool to be able to drive your revenue streams because you don't typically make money on books. Even the highest end authors that, that have had like multiple New York Times bestsellers still spend half a million dollars on marketing. So they're not making a lot of money, but yeah. necessarily. But it gives somebody like something that they can touch or, you know, they can say, oh, yes. you know, I'll, I'll read that on a plane or my, on my phone while I'm waiting. But what that is, is a lead generator because that puts those people into your funnel where you do something what's called upsells, right? So once you have a basic relationship with, with a group of people, whether that's because they've opted in on your website for like say a free download or something like that, and they paid with their email address or they bought your book, all of a sudden they're in your sales funnel and they've already bought into what you are selling. So you can do things like keynotes. I charge 10 to $20,000 a keynote when I go and give keynotes at large corporations or large conferences. Like I went and spoke at like the ANA or the AAD, which is a dermatologist or MGMA, which is the medical group management association. And so those are quite lucrative and a physician can make even more money. Of course, there are Forget what they're called, the blue laws or red, uh, it's a color, but if you're working with a pharma, there's something very specific. So there just has to be some uh, disclosures if you're an actual physician. But then there are also things like online courses. I have a bunch of physician friends who have online courses that are teaching people how to do something specific. And you can charge $50 to $5,000 for those. You can upsell for consulting right? Like I consult all the time. I charge like $500 an hour to do coaching and people usually need me for one to three sessions. So it's actually a small amount of money for them, but it's a lucrative revenue stream for myself and I'm helping people, right? So there are, there are just so many different products you can do when you are a thought leader, but it's the consulting one. There are companies who have hired me for six figures to build personal brands. Wow. But I'm thinking as a, as a heart surgeon or, you know, even a cardiologist, well, because I'm sure you know, they could partner with a cardiology group if they're just doing the surgery, but say, Hey, you know, we could come up like companies may pay us to come up with a cookbook and a grocery list and a menu to help those that are having heart problems or a post care diet and exercise regimen with videos, you know, and they can partner with nutritionists or even physical therapists and they can post videos and cooking show. I mean, they don't even have to do it all themselves, but they could build their brand and then bring people in and build an even bigger brand. Exactly. And then the sky's the limit. I mean, what you just said, even, you know, putting together a program or a cookbook, 
That's also a fantastic vertical for corporations. Corporations, their HR departments and their wellness programs will pay big bucks for things like that will make their employees healthier and reduce the healthcare costs. Like Walmart, Walmart is self-insured and they've got about a million employees under their insurance policy. And they're always looking for ways to make their employees healthier and to reduce their healthcare spending, right? And so being able to teach patients something about the heart or something about uh, improving their health or hypertension or or any of that kind of stuff is something that corporations might pay for too. And when you are dealing with, with the private corporations, that is the kind of big money, right? Those are the ones that pay the 10, 20, $30,000 speaker fees or workshop fees versus, you know, the public facing conferences or the academic conferences, they don't pay. So just make sure that you understand (laughs) what, what does pay academic conferences, you actually have to pay yourself to, to get into the conference and pay for your own flights. And then you don't get an honorarium, but that's just how academic conferences work. So make sure you you are knocking on the right doors to sell the product that they will buy. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I think that they, if they thought about it, I think they really could start expanding, expanding their universe, you know, with the end goal of, of having lead generation for patients, but you know, they're, they're an expert. And I think patients might feel like the example that I was, you know, going, staying with the same example of a heart surgeon. If you have a heart surgeon that has like a post-operative plan for you, you know, you're like, okay, so they're not just going to cut me open and then, you know, see me for a few follow-ups and, and, you know, they actually prescribe me a, a regimen that I can follow. And so they care about me after they see me as well. Yep. And that helps with lead generating for their main revenue stream because all of us have one main revenue stream and theirs is probably doing, you know, seeing patients. Right. We tell you about a friend of mine who's an anesthesiologist and, you know, anesthesiologists are one of the top uh, paid specialties. Mm-hmm. And so he works full time doing that, but he also does online courses and he started in um, medical school, uh, potential medical school students, teaching them what they need to do when they're undergrad and how to take the MCATs, how to study for it, how to get into medical school, how to survive medical school. And so he makes more money on his side project than as an anesthesiologist and he's making a lot of money as an anesthesiologist, right? And so he has a lot of different revenue streams because once he has a product, he's teaching college students how to get into medical school and how to survive that part of their life. All of a sudden he has a product that he can package in a million different ways. Because let me tell you, in today's economy, people don't pay for content. They pay for packaging. Mm. Right. Yeah. Organizing it for them so they don't have to go and research a billion different areas and go down rabbit holes and lose time. Exactly. (laughs) Putting together that program and bundling it into a video program or a book or a series of articles, whatever that is, it's all about the packaging. That content can stay exactly the same. And that's one of Gary V's big secrets. So he, if you haven't heard of him, of course, he's a big social media phenomenon on like Insta and all of that kind of stuff, like a millennial generation is what you do is, is you write one thing and then you just constantly take that same content and repackage it in different ways. Right. And so like I have three different books. My first book, the patient as CEO is all the ones, the AI robotic sensors, all the technology that's disrupting medicine right now. 
And I was able to repackage that into $20,000 keynotes. I had lots of different articles. I think 15 or 20 different articles came out of that. And all you literally do is you pull the articles out of the book. Right. That, and then you like a page out of the book and you publish that. And it's all about taking that one content portfolio and just repackaging it in different ways. Right. Well, because, you know, people don't have a lot of time. So they're like, oh, yeah, you know, I'll flip through your book. And some people like to also hear you express your concepts verbally, you know, and then some people are like, you know, just give me these snippets one at a time, like in two minute blurbs so that I don't have to commit, you know, I don't, I don't want to commit to like a 30 minute video. So (laughs) you, you capture everyone. And that's a really good point. In my book, I take you through the actual system, but I take you through really outlining your customer avatars. And if there's a lot of doctors who are listening to this, you guys are so have so much education, but you might not have heard of something like customer avatars because that is purely a marketing thing, right? Mm-hmm. And you probably didn't get a communications degree. <laughs> and so what that is, is really understanding who your audience is. Who's mm-hmm. going to pay you, Right. And so a customer avatar could be uh, someone who is over the age of 40, married with two kids living in one of the coasts or middle America, making a hundred to $200,000 a year with one chronic disease patient. The more you know about your customer avatars and the kind of person who's going to pay you for your service, the better. And then once you've figured out the best customer, then you figure out what kind of content do those people consume? Right. Right. I mean, if you're dealing with Generation Z, you got to be on something like TikTok. But if you're dealing with like, I'm a Gen X, like I'm on LinkedIn and I like to read articles. I I just don't even understand 15 second videos. I'm like, why would I watch that? Right. (laughs) And so really understanding what type of content and form factor do the people who would actually pay you money for want. Right. No, I think that is great advice. That's great advice. Well, Robin, I want to move into the Q&A to get to know you a little bit. I could continue talking to you for for several hours. Uh, I find this fascinating. So what was your first job? Oh, I was a babysitter nanny at like the age of 12. (laughs) Yeah, you know, my mom was a pediatrician. And so people always wanted to hire me because they knew my mom was a phone call away down the street and she was a doctor. Oh, that's great. (laughs) Yeah, no, absolutely. I got lots of clients when I was 12. Absolutely. My mom's a phone call away if you ever, if your, if your child is in any harm. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) What would you be doing for a living if you were not doing what you're doing now? Probably be the CEO of a multinational corporation. Wow. Yeah. That was like, I'm very intense, but I went a completely different direction. I went into the early stage startup world uh, because, you know, it's pretty high risk and it's the cutting edge, but it's more around my personality. But when I was in school and a teenager, I always just assumed I was going to be the CEO. <laughs> and most likely it was going to be a corporation in medicine or, or uh, preventive medicine. Wow. I like that. What or who are you reading or listening to right now for news, information, or inspiration? Oh, I am rereading Eric Topol's book right now on artificial intelligence because I've been really uh, writing out this big series on AI and I've, I've got most of it written, but I, you know, I love to reread his stuff because he's a physician and he just has a whole different viewpoint than I do. So I love seeing it from his point of view. That's interesting. Is he excited about AI? Oh, yeah. You know, getting more into uh, medicine? Yes. And um, most of my stuff, like I just do very high level so you understand that the technology is coming. 
He cites all the studies. He nice. talks about, you know, it's it's definitely higher level reading. Like my books, you can read no matter who you are. His, you do have to be in healthcare to understand a lot of it. It's more more technical, but that's why I also love it because I get to see all the little details and stuff like that. Yeah, I just finished um, the book Why We Sleep, and they go into a lot of the technical studies and stuff like that. But I, I found it incredibly fascinating. Exactly. Um, but it's the same thing. Like if you're if you're looking for an easy read, that's not it. <laughs> Yeah. You see, know your audience and what what type of content they want to consume. Exactly. (laughs) Exactly. So what is one thing you do every day for healthy self-care? Oh, uh, my morning is always fixed. I work out an hour a day to an hour and a half sometimes and uh, seven days a week, 365 days a year. And it does not matter how sick I am because, you know, I'm a chronic disease patient. So with Crohn's disease, even under control, there are still, you know, bad nights, bad pain nights. I don't have a large intestine. So like I have a J pouch to deal with. And sometimes I wake up and I'm drenched in sweat from pain and I can barely stand up and doesn't matter. I am on my Stairmaster and then my elliptical for 60 minutes, period, end of story. I get there. And my doctors think that's one of the main reasons I am doing so well. Like on a normal non-pandemic year, I travel the world and I give keynotes on lots of stages and I work two or three other jobs with startups and I do coaching and I'm incredibly busy and very active. And that's not normal for someone who was as sick as I am. And so really it's the, it's the exercise. I'm also about 10 to 12 years older than you probably think I am by looking at me. I'll never ask age. I don't do that. <laughs> 29. We're always 29. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. I love the nine birthdays. They're awesome. Yep. Are leaders born or trained? Oh, both. It depends. You know, that's that's too general. So some people are just born leaders and they get up and they just naturally know how to do it. And then some people are leadership is thrust upon them in a situation and, and they really rise to the occasion although they've never thought of themselves to do that before. And then some people look and say, I want to be the leader and they can follow a path to build themselves into that. So it depends on, on, you know, a lot of your personality traits. Yeah, absolutely. No, I like that. I like that. Well, Robin, this has been a fantastic conversation. So if someone wants to reach out to you, you know, what would be a target person for you, you know, in the healthcare space? So uh, I do a lot of keynotes. So if you want to learn about uh, essentially one of my biggest ones that people hired me for, and I'm doing a, a keynote for the ICD coding um, academy, oh. which is, yeah. So there's going to be about 1600 ICD coders. Bless you. Holy cow. I was like, oh, that's kind of cool. I never get to like talk to people like that. So that's going to be kind of cool. But what I'll do is I'll spend 60 minutes on the shift in healthcare delivery. So AI voice spots, so vocal biomarkers, things through Amazon Alexa, the title care, like I mentioned, the point of care diagnostics. I'll talk about uh, some of the EMR integrations. And I usually try and outline, depending on who it is, like if United Healthcare comes in and, and tells me that it's for their top employers, then I will show them how I saved a million dollars on my top line billing by switching, you know, Remicade into the home and how they can do that for their patients or yeah. their employees. So it's very personalized, but, but really it's going to be that, that full overview of AI sensors, uh, communication devices and, uh, and what's being reimbursed and where it is. So I talk a, a little bit about CMS because of course CMS sets the standard of care. Right, and so right. I say, what what are their cutting edge things that they're reimbursing for now that you can take advantage of? 
Well, and I think you get a lot of credibility saying, hey, I'm, I have navigated this system and through trial and error, I'm, I'm an example myself of how I've done this myself so that I can live a normal life. Yes, exactly. Well, that's what gives me a lot of the credibility. And then in my day job, of course, I do work on things like early stage pharma, trying to cure cancer. I've invested in inhaled insulin. I've invested in a vaccine. So, I mean, like I I am in the thick of some of the most cutting edge of the technologies to begin with is my day job. There's (laughs) one company I'm working with that's a virtual reality for stroke and brain injury rehabilitation with FDA clearance. Wow. I know. That's awesome. Yeah. That is awesome. (laughs) <laughs> oh, that's great. Wow. Well, that's so exciting, Robin. I'm, I'm so glad we were able to, to have this conversation and I look forward to having another one at some point. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you. I'm grateful for you tuning in to the Providers, Properties, and Performance podcast. If you enjoyed it, please subscribe, rate, review, and share the podcast with others. As a disclaimer, this podcast is intended for educational and entertainment purposes only and not intended for specific real estate investment advice.